nerd soul. Set a little bit of the context for what we're going to be talking about today. Um, first and foremost, this is not a lecture hall. Right. So if at any point you if something moves you, you want to share, if you have a question, you have any feedback for us whatsoever, you do not have to wait to the end to raise your hand. I can't hear though, so you might have to either come to the front or speak very loudly, but at any point, if there's anything that you want to say, you do not have to wait. You do not have to wait. You feel good about that? Yes. We, want to, we want this to be a conversation, not a talking ahead. People right. can talk that about, right? Um, the other thing, and I, I start everything that I do with this sort of context setting because um, talking about racial identity, issues of race, it can be uncomfortable, it can be a lot, it can be turned up, and as a psychologist, I always invite people to lean into however it feels. I think we're often, if things start to get uncomfortable, it's like, nope, I'm going to stop now. I'm going to actually invite us to do the opposite. And so I'm going to invite us all as we're sharing and co-constructing this space together today uh, to keep these things in mind. And number one is to stay engaged. I still feel the sleep in my eyes. So what my engagement looks like right now is just going to be what it is authentically to me. Um, and what, however you engage, I invite you to do so in a way that best aligns with you. There's no right or wrong way to be in here. You don't have to feel any way other than the way that you feel. Okay? And then I'm going to invite everybody to, I always say, experience discomfort. Um, discomfort is different from harm. Right. If you feel unsafe or if you feel harmed, I invite you to call me or Victor. Call us into that. We say something or do something that causes you to feel harmed in some way. I invite you to call me in. I don't say call out. Call me in to that um, because I want to be open to learning and growing. Just like I hope everybody is in this space. Sound good? Everybody feel good? Okay. Um, expect and accept non-closure. When we have conversations about any type of equity issue, but particularly about race. We're not gonna solve it. We can't. We're not gonna solve it in 45 minutes. We're not gonna solve it in 45 years, probably. Well, well. Um, and so I invite you all to lean into, you will likely leave this space with more questions than answers. But that's a good thing. Pondering is great. That means that we have ignited and planted the seed within you for consideration. That's absolutely what our goal is. 1,000%. Um, and then lastly, if you do elect to share with us, I invite you to speak your truth. Um, you are one of one. There's no one else on this earth who's had your experiences. And it's not my job, it's not Victor's job to tell you that your experiences are inaccurate. It's our job, I feel like, to make space for perspectives. And your truth is your own, and it's not my job to tell you that it's not. Everybody feel good about these things? We all agree yes. that this is the thing oh, yeah. to do? Right. Here. Here. <laughs> Real comfortable. That's right. Yeah. I'm like jealous a little bit, actually. So. We're gonna sort of start this conversation very generally and then get very specific as we move on. So the first thing we're gonna talk about is what makes things scary. So we're gonna talk about different horror tropes. And again, this is a perspective, it's not the perspective. Um, but this perspective that I'm gonna share with you all is actually from a short on YouTube called Why We Have a Hard On for Horror. Um, and it's from a group called, I think, Film School. Um, and they talk a little bit about what makes things scary. And I'm just gonna invite you all to think about this in the terms of lived experience. Spoiler, I'm gonna tell you about it too, in terms of lived experience. So the first thing is the unfamiliar. So we're taught from a very early age, like stranger danger. Things that we don't understand, um, things that are unfamiliar to us are to be feared, right? And so what is different or what is considered abnormal is scary. So think about that. Difference is to be feared. How many comic book fans do we have? So the X-Men, that's part of their charter that because they are born different, they are feared and 
cadence for that difference. Um, and that's not even necessarily approaching the X-Men as a horror-based piece, but it is a generalized concept that the unknown is the thing that you should be terrified about. Uh, definition equals uh, safety, and lack of is horrifying. Yes, and and from I'm, I'm not trying I'm trying not to be too philosophical, but from an existential perspective, um, ambiguity causes anxiety. So if we are uncertain, just as existential human beings, it makes us feel icky. It makes us feel icky, and so the unfamiliar again, it's icky, it's scary, right? Um, secondly, lack of control. So feeling as if, in horror, we see this, like if you've ever watched anything where somebody's like in a box, buried alive, um, people being trapped inside their own bodies. Possession. Exactly. Come on. I was about to say, I'm a supernatural fan, so demon possession. Come on now. Um, That's right. Being trapped inside your own body and having no control, right? Or not even talking about physical lack of control, but just lack of control generally, right? And again, for people in the world who have no power, this is your life. Right. You have no control. On a very real level, there's there's politics Facts. coded into that. The, the idea of uh, laws being instituted against you that you have no voice in. That is literal that, uh, which obviously we're gonna, we're gonna talk about more in racial platform. I got you, I got you. And then lastly, uh, lack of information. So when things are don't go according to plan, um, again, it makes us feel icky. It makes us feel scared, nervous. Um, when you are someone who has no say in what the plan is, that's terrifying, right? Um, and again, for people, certain people, as they move through the world, which we're going to talk about a little bit more, this is your day. This is your life. So all of these three things that we just described, to be black in America, this is your life. Can we, can we focus on the difference between the unfamiliar and then the uh, lack of information? Those are two separate things where the unfamiliar is a generalized state of, I don't know what this is. I have no idea what this is. Um, the lack of information is, I have an idea of what I want, and that is being denied to me. Like, that is a very different level of terrifying as opposed to, well, we have no idea what this is, generalized fear structure versus, I had intended this, and I got that, yes. and I don't know what to do with that. That's different. So just to kind of separate those things. Yes. And is everybody, everybody cool with where we are right now? Everybody feel good like they understand? I feel like I'm teaching a class. Everybody feel like they understand? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think that talking about that difference between the unfamiliar and the lack of information, mm -hmm. especially in the context of growing into oneself in America as African-American, you are familiar with systems of oppression and how they feel, right. but there's no definition or an explanation of, oh, well, I was talking to him, I said something mean, he hit me. Right. I know I did something wrong, but I was walking down the street mm -hmm. and now I'm on the pavement with handcuffs behind me. Mm. I don't know what I do. I don't know what I do. Mm. Information that's real. That is very and, and what I appreciate about what you just did too is that so often when we have these conversations, they remain in the abstract, like like it's just something that's floating in the air. But what you just did is bring us down to the lived experience level. So I appreciate you. Yes. That come, you might have to come <laughs> I appreciate you. That's back down. Right. Right. Um, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to um, Dr. Stanford Car Carpenter and John Jennings. Um, they have developed this term 
um, ethnogothic, which they essentially describe as, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do the Cliff's Notes version, horror that reflects racism, essentially. So utilizing horror elements to reflect oppressive experiences, particularly as it relates to blackness um, and anti-black racism. And so I don't know more than that because it's very academic. But if you like super nerdy and you want to read about it, um, John Jennings and Dr. Stanford Carpenter are just two amazing human beings who have been doing this work for a long, long time. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, they also have a strong background in comics. Um, John has been uh, doing adaptations of Olivia Butler's work, so there's a nice carryover in terms of Afrofuturism to ethno-Gothic. Um, so all these different, you know, Afrocentric concepts you can explore um, through the utilization of both of their their works. They are phenomenal. The things that they create in that capacity. And so now we're going to get into talking about specific works, specific creative works. Um, before we do so, I'm just I'm going to do a minor bit of context setting around racism. Um, and again, the intention is not it's going to be right. I just want to tell you all that. Like, talking about racism is great. And um, I will also say that at the end of this presentation, my intention is to yes and all of that is heavy and. What do we do with that? What can we do about that? Because yes, it's horrible. And there are things that we can do, right? And so I'm gonna do a minor bit of context setting and then we're gonna get into talking about some specific creative works. Does everybody feel good about that? If you said no, I didn't know what I was gonna do. <laughs> <laughs> Lack of information right there. <laughs> right. Uh, so, and, and again, this is all gonna be from like a mental health lens, I'm a psychologist, that's my space. And so when we think about what is considered normal, and right now I'm talking about normal in terms of like mental health and wellness, um, there are three ways that we typically frame normality. The first is statistically. So whatever most people do, that's what's considered normal. If you think about the fact that most people look a certain way, most people have a certain worldview, most people come from a certain cultural background, anything that's not that is gonna be considered abnormal. Right? So when we play the numbers game, like, well, more people care about this or more people think this, so that must be what's normal. That's the whole lot. Yes, it is. Think about how, like, logically right. it doesn't even make sense. Well, because it's, it's super anecdotal and therefore not factual. And when you have this concept of, well, all of us agree, doesn't mean that it is absolutely correct. You know, there was a point in time where most of us agreed that uh, we were the center of the universe. Most of us agreed that, you know, Right? You know what I'm saying? Some people do. They the majority thing. Uh, but the idea of majority rule in terms of information and truth is a dangerous concept because that's where you get into the, the realm of uh, propaganda, mind control, which kind of leads you to that second category of lack of control and horror. Yes, yes, yes. And I think to that end, um, the second way, again, from a mental health space that we typically categorize normality is by what the mental health guys that be have deemed as normal, right? right. So when you go to therapy, when I, I was trained as a therapist, as a psychologist, there are certain things that we want people to be able to do. We want people to have insight, we want people to be able to face their problems, like whatever, like things like that, that against somebody somewhere, Freud or whoever, right. said this is what is ideal mental health. There are many cultures and many ways of being around the world, maybe that's not their truth, right? And so if someone comes into my office and they say that they see their dead ancestor, and the first thing I say is, well, you must have schizophrenia. I'm not making space for other ways of thinking and other ways of being, right? And so I could be pathologizing something that is just outside of a culture that, that I, you know what I'm saying? 
And so that too, logically speaking, why is it ideal that people have insight? Right. Who said that? Even on a temporal level, that is dangerous because things change, right? Like there are things that Freud said that we look at now like, why are you talking? Like what are you hearing? But there are like medical practices where the solutions for things, we would probably call sexual assault at this point. Right. And you go, what, what made you think that that was fixing whatever it was that you thought was wrong? Yes. Um, so temporally even, that, that concept changes. So try not to lock yourself into a majority rule of truth because that's not always Yes, yes. And the last piece I'll talk about um, before we move forward is we typically consider things to be abnormal if there are the presence of certain behaviors. So for example, a, a very a very simple example is eye contact. When you come to a, a mental health provider, we do what we call a mental status exam. So we're checking to see, do you understand what day it is, what time it is, we're doing all these things. And one of the things we assess people on is eye contact. So if people are not making eye contact, like it's normal or if people are staring a hole into you, it's notable, right? Um, but we understand that there are certain cultures in certain places where that's disrespectful, don't move me in my eyes. Um, and so again, more often than not, the presence of certain behaviors that are abnormal are those that are basically not white. You know what I'm saying? So cultures that are outside of Euro descent, right? And so again, I say all of this, and say all of this to say, in more spaces than not, being black is pathologized. Just being, right? Just being black is pathologized. And then going back to all that that we discussed in terms of what makes things scary, being black is scary as hell. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Being black in this world is scary as hell. So moving forward, um, the last thing I'll say is when we think about racism and how it manifests, right? And again, that's why I so much appreciate that you put actual like concreteness to that. Um, racism is not just the n-word. Right. Racism is not just mass incarceration. It's all of the above. Um, racism exists on four different levels. For many scholars, this is what we sort of consider. There's an internalized racism. So uh, what that looks like for me is imposterism, right? Like every space that I'm in, I feel like I'm only here because I know somebody. I'm not here because I earned it on my own merit. I'm not, a, I'm a diversity hire, right? That's internalized racism, right? Um, interpersonal racism happens between the person versus exactly what it sounds like. Um, so interpersonal racism, the saying the word, yeah. that's interpersonal racism. Right. Um, microaggressions, uh, things of that nature. Can I touch your hair? Can I touch your hair? It's so pretty. You're super articulate, you know that? <laughs> microaggressions. And these are microaggressions that I hear so often. You're so, you sound so smart. Dr. Vanessa I have a whole doc, yes. <laughs> I would, like, it's really a testament as well when you hear from other black people when you hear them say, you talk so well for yourself, and I'm like, I'm talking like you. Like, there's no difference in the way of how we speak. Like, the, the fact that we hold education and intelligence to a white standard is what really makes the, like, person-to-person -person level just a little bit more hurtful, especially within your own community. Yes. Yes. I'm gonna throw out some humor with mine. A person who do not know me, I'm from Baton Rouge. You know, we have certain ways of talking, especially here from New Orleans. <laughs> I will, you know, and I was, I was doing budgeting, so you know, you have to be very professional, very succinct, and all that. And this guy, oh my God, he was the one of the worst clients. He was like, 
man, you sound like a white boy from Iowa. I'm like, what? Wow. I was like, how do you get so, how you get so particular? <laughs> then he met me, he was like, <laughs> he was like, why are you doing, like, I was like, I'm doing my job. I'm like, excuse me. Yes. Oh, man. Yeah. You talk about interpersonal code switching and those people that either are against the concept of it and want to rate you for it or don't have the skill set for it and don't understand it, that's a big one. That's borderline institutional because the way that it, it plays out is more of a cultural yes. blanket yes. that some people can ride with and some people can't. Yes. Personally, I think it is almost an aspect of being bilingual, which makes it more of a benefit to be able to do that. But say like You know, I always say code switching right. is my superpower. Code right. switching is a superpower. Um, and again, what makes it horrible mm -hmm. is that we shouldn't have to do that. Truth. I shouldn't Truth. have to straighten my head. Absolutely. I shouldn't have to deal with this, these shenanigans up in here, <laughs> right? Um, and so again, when we're thinking about racism as we move into talking about these different works, remember that we're not just talking about hurtful language. We're not just talking about, I don't feel good about myself. We're talking about all of the above. We're talking about a holistic experience. Um, so as we move through, um, these different works. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many people have seen Get Out? How many people watched Get Out more than once? Yeah, y'all tired. I can Bits and pieces. I can I, I watched it once and that was it. Um, I, would, I will also contextualize myself like I'm married to a white man. Um, and so... <laughs> my question is how strong was the side eye after that movie <laughs> what you mean yes Listen, me, me and him have an understanding that we're going and we're going for three hours and then we leave. Um, which again, it's not, I'm, I'm like, these are needs that I have, right? Like this is, we're, we're married, it's a partnership. These are needs that I have. And so um, I think part of it is that. And part of it is doing my own work around my racial identity, what my blackness means to me, what my blackness means in those spaces. And so, because again, I also, and this is, I don't like this language, but let's not use it. I don't want them to have that kind of power over me. Like, y'all not gonna have me cowering in the corner. Um, which again, I, that's something I need to work on too. Um, and so for me, it's, it's, it's a both hand. It's one, doing my own internal work about my blackness, what that means, how to navigate this. And then we have partnership. So I'm gonna need you to support me in this because you know this is turned up mm -hmm. and it's awkward AF for me. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You. Thank you for that validation. Of course, of course. Anytime, anytime. I just ask you another thing. I was about to say, I thought this was a theater with like an all black audience, except for like two white people. Oh wow. Like, no, funny, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, they were 
They were either terrified or the most understanding audience members of the entire church. Right. Right. Stuff like that, so I had when we all screamed, we were all like, oh, wow. They're waiting to see if it was, they were allowed to laugh. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the crazy, oh, sorry. The, the craziest thing with that movie, when I went, when I saw it, it was akin to like church almost. Baptist, right here. Yes. You had the parts where you were elated, this and that, and then you had the drop where, you know, yep. spitting fire at you. And it's just like, it was. I couldn't go back to the theater to watch it, but it was just like, so good. you know, yes. but it was a, an experience for real. Yes, 100%. Uh, so I'm kind of in a similar situation. My fiance, they were white, mm -hmm. um, but they were, the, they were like all for wanting to go seek it out together when it first dropped. And I was like, hun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the worst thing of it all is I was living in California at the time and the area we were living in uh, very like Latino based company community, which was really great. Um, but I was like, hun, I'm not, I'm not, are you, are you sure? Right. So like we go and see the movie, I'm having like, I'm, I'm experiencing everything because literally months after I went to go visit their family. And it's really awkward when you are, like as you said, when you are being the only black person mm -hmm. in a majority white space, especially knowing when some of them are hard right Republicans. Mm -hmm. And one of them and um, their stepfather actually has a Trump 2024 flag in wow. their garage. Wow. And I was like, and, and they were very comforting in the fact of whenever you are ready to go say the word, we can leave any point. Right. Um, but at the same time, I was like having this internal conflict of, I appreciate you trying to be a shield for me in this, but at the same time, I also need to let people know I'm not gonna shy away from you just because I'm black. Right. Like you don't get to have that uncomfortability from me to let yourself feel dominant in a situation. I'm not about to let you maintain that power. Right. Like, I'm right. not about to let you think that, yeah, you may be Republican. I like, I'm not. I know the values, I know what I stand for, but I'm not gonna let you have that. But in the instance of in terms of their white privilege, it's like, thank you for willing to be a shield for me so I don't have to experience Absolutely. That. That's love. Right there. That's love. Yes. I like that term, the hard R Republicans. Take that as you will. <laughs> Good. As you will. I say that phrase all the time. Right. Joe, hard R. Hard R. Republicans. Yes. <laughs> I think it's really interesting about uh, Get Out, especially from a blackness standpoint, was the cultural criticism uh, that was leveled at it from multiple angles, considering that Daniel is not African American. He is British. And uh, there was a little flack that was given to Sam Jackson, who posed the question of was he the best representative of this, this concept of uh, American racism towards black people uh, because he did not in fact experience it growing up in England. And there was people that were like, well, blackness is blackness and racism is racism. And he's like, true, but there's also, or true and, there is a very specific version of it based on where you are. And if 
he has not actually experienced this level on an American soil basis um, of the culture, the history, and things like that, does he fully um, understand it? And would it be a different presentation if it was an African-American actor that did it? And I think that is a viable question. Um, and one that would, could only be posed because Sam Jackson has the clout to pose it and watch him out if you question. Like that's just what right, will happen. Right. Um, what do you think in terms of that? Is there, for your own you know, perspective, a range of blackness that could be affected in that concept? It's a lot. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. It's a, it's a um, so I would say so. One, he is, which is like the cop not too super. Right. Um, and I would say that there's a book, and I'll put y'all in this game. It's called Emotional Justice by Esther Mom. Um, she's actually Ghanaian of Ghanaian descent, um, but lived in England for a long time. Right. So I would, I, I would, you know, similar. Um, but she talks about global anti-blackness. And so I think that there is a space where anti-blackness is anti-black, you know, like it's global, right? Um, and it's a both and. So I think that, uh, yes, I am about to question Samuel Jackson, my manifest. And so I think it's a yes and. I Go think ahead. that um, to claim that Daniel could not, um, perform right. and understand the dynamics of anti-black racism, I think is no. And right. I do think that, you know, is he the descendant of enslaved peoples? I would argue yes. Um, it definitely hit differently in America. It hits differently in America. And again, different does not mean more or less. It mean different. And so that's what I think, um, when we want to talk about the complexities of, of that sort of consideration, I don't want us to get into a, well, black Americans had it worse than anyone. No, it's a, it, we're looking at it like this. We're not looking at it like this. Um, because again, anti-blackness is both. Right. Especially, in, to even put a stronger point on that, um, the variations of blackness and skin tone alone um, kind of proves that point. Uh, Vanessa is biracial. I just happen to be light-skinned. But there is a, a similarity that we will definitely have in terms of possibly questioning our blackness because we're not as dark as others. Um, it's, a, it's a range of concepts. And it does have, uh, you know, colorism is an, is an inner community issue that we are working on. Uh, but it does kind of have this interesting unifying prospect to it when you do see uh, racism towards blackness because it don't matter how light-skinned, dark-skinned you are, uh, you're black. And that's how a lot of the, the greater racist community will look at us. Yes. So that is a unifying power for us. Yes. And imagine if they would have had an African-American actor that was light-skinned. Right. How that, how there, there also would have been, you know, conversation about Absolutely. that. And so what I appreciate about what you're bringing up too, and what I appreciate about the film, is that it made space for these conversations. Yes. It made space. Um, so the other thing I'll say about the show, um, before we move forward is, again, the people, uh, Rose's parents, their persona, what Rose is her name, right? Rose, the keys, okay. Her parents. What's up with you? Her parents were um, liberal, super liberal, yes. like ultra liberal, right? Um, and what I feel like Get Out did so beautifully, uh, among many things, is to convey the everydayness of racism. So there's a clip, we're not gonna show it for the sake of time, but the clip where Chris enters the party and there's like, he looks and it's just all white people and then that like renovation dude. Um, but there's like all white people and he kind of, you kind of see him feel like he kind of on display, right? Um, and then this, this Asian dude is like, can you tell us about the African 
African American experience. Beat the avatar of a black and sports, like, please. Uh, no, and that's when he sees Lakeith Stanfield, and then the whole picture, and the, you know, you know that part. Um, but again, I think that not only do we see the everydayness of racism, but we see the spectrum of racism from covert to overt, right? So, well, spoiler alert, if anybody ain't never seen it out. When we get to the point where we understand what they're doing to black bodies, and sort of this is like a new form of enslavement, that is overt as hell racism, right? Um, but the racism that we see up until that point with the with the parents and all of these things that's covert and that i would say for more for most of us is what we experience every day very rarely are we experiencing like very overt racism um every day every day all the time covert racism though is like death by a thousand paper cuts and to be even more specific this was covert racism in wrapped in the form of a compliment Mm -hmm. By suggesting that these black bodies were going to be better than the white bodies that they were inhabiting, therefore they should want to have them because you're so good, you're so great, you are built up in a way that we are not. It's wrapped in a compliment, but in truth, we're going to enslave you for forever and be your person and take who you are away from you. Yes, yes, yes. And the last thing we'll say about Get Out because we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss it, the sunken place. Mm -hmm. um, to me, Jordan Peele is just, he's, doing he's just so great. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I would say about the second place that for me it is representative of is that helplessness that we talked about before. Because no matter how hard Chris tried, he couldn't get out of that place alone. Right. You know who helped him? Mm -hmm. T.S. motherfucking A. I love it. I love it. But with the help of, of another black man, you know what I'm saying? But that, to me, the sunken place is marginalization manifest. Yes. Right? I'm trying so hard. I ain't want this shit. Mm -hmm. Here comes the lady with this teacup. Oop, now it's nothing I can do right. because the system in the world is stacked against me. Right. Anybody have anything else they want to share about yeah, Get Up? Yes. Uh, going back to the parents, the medical establishment and medical racism is not a not an overt right. mention part of it, but the dad, they come from a line mm -hmm. of uh, generational wealth and uh, medical uh, surgery. Right. The mom is a psychologist mm -hmm. with an understanding of the mind, and they have a full, everyone there has a full understanding of what they're doing, but they lack the cultural context of, do you really want to spend a day black like me? And actually, never thought of it. Yeah. Yeah. Never I thought of it. it. Yeah. Like, they don't know the black experience, but it's like you're willing because they believe in the hype. They believe in like you know everybody's like, oh, like he's a superior athlete. Right. They don't come from a line of medical people and not understand that medical racism means that on average black people live less, less, like shorter lives. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you would have to go to black as a black person and they they ignore all of that because they're just like, well, black people have a superior body. But it's like we don't. But a lot of the times it's like we look superior on the outside, we have a lot of health issues. Right? Not necessarily. Uh, <laughs> but 
Awesome. Thank you all for sharing the conversation with us. As I mentioned, we're not going to show the clip for the sake of time. Uh, but we're going to move Lovecraft Country. Can people sing Lovecraft Country? Who has read Lovecraft Country? Okay, okay. Who watched Lovecraft Country more than once? Y'all tired, y'all. Yes. Yeah. Couldn't yeah. quite finish it. So, um, but what I would say is just sort of um, introductorily about Lovecraft Country is for me, um, the, the take on message is that racism is scarier than any monster. Mm -hmm. You can think of any monster, right? Um, and just a couple points I'll give and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Victor. But um, one thing we see in, in Lovecraft Country, which again, I'm sorry, spoiler alert. Um, the white people have all the magic. Until then. Until. Um, but the white people have all the magic, they have all the power. Right? Um, the first episode of Lovecraft Country, we see that sort of escape from the sundown town, um, that whole scene, anxiety on the mill, right? Um, we see the experimentation, you talked about medical racism, the entire field of obstetrics and gynecology is what it is today because enslaved black women were operated on without their consent. The father of gynecology was a slaver. Right? Um, and so we see that in Lovecraft Country. I think that was episode three in the house with um, all the all the spirits that came back to like mess up the scientist dude who was um, experimenting on black bodies. But we see that now. We saw that then, right? Um, we also see in Lovecraft Country that unchecked power often leads to racialized violence. Um, his, uh, at Tick's relationship with the whole Braithwaite family, um, the, the recreation of the murder of Emmett Till and the whole way that they sort of handled and sort of showcased that. Um, and then episode nine with the Tulsa Race Massacre. Um, that's part of the reason I never watched that show again. It was so, that was intense. Um, episode nine was intense. And then lastly, um, one thing that I think they did beautifully, um, rest in heaven to Michael K. Williams, but the depiction of intersectionality. So him as a black gay man in the 50s, it was a 50s, 60s, something like that. Um, and also Ruby. Um, we saw the instance where she was granted the ability to be in a white body and how it was to have a black consciousness in a white body at that time. So I don't know if there's anything specific that you want to share about that. Well, I, I think overall the series, what it did was it pointed to a point in time in history that we had kind of forgotten. Um, there are a lot of things where Emmett Till becomes a cautionary tale that we've heard of, but we don't fully understand the ramifications, how it came about. Um, we just know that this happened, point start, point end, not the, the road travel um, and the turmoil that, that was built around it. Um, leading into you know, the Tulsa massacre, uh, we have to kind of point at uh, the, the Watchmen uh, show as well, um, both kind of hitting around the same time and pointing uh, at this specific or this uh, spotlight on this specific event in history that so many people had never heard of before. And when you have two different you know forms of communication media highlight the same thing yet very relative short amount of time, you go, is this this got to be real? Like two different people didn't magically decide, hey, we're going to talk about this, um, but to see the ramifications of it all and tie. Uh, the entire history together is actually quite beautiful. Um, one of the things I love the most, though, is that the, the root basis of it being based on Lovecraft was a known racist. Right. So, like, to it's it's almost taking it back. You know what I mean? So, like, um, through the instance of all the stories, the relationships, showing things that, true to form, Lovecraft himself would have been against. Um, it's kind of you know thumbing your nose at, at this literary figure that's been put up on a pedestal. But then taking it back going, there were things that you weren't right about, and we're going to use you, your name, and the things that you've built that have made you so popular, we're gonna show you another side 
of what could have been and do you better than you did. Mm -hmm. Yes, 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 yes. Um, I can't believe this, but we got five minutes. Oh, um, I don't know how we did this. So I, there's one thing I want to talk about, and then we'll open it up because I feel like this is such a tremendous segue. And if you know, you know, you know I'm not about to say this out loud. <laughs> <laughs> how many of you have seen the 1992 version? Yes. 2021? Yes. Child? Okay. So one thing that I'll say about these. Um, and I think what, you, what we were just describing with regard to um, racialized violence, I think this is a tremendous segue. Mm -hmm. The tagline for these films is Say His Name. Mm -hmm. Where have we heard that before well, no. in recent history, right? Um, I think that, and I'm just going to say it once, I'm not going to say it again. Candyman is a he is, he is a manifestation of all of those who have died at the hands of systemic racism, right? And uttering his name brings on all of this horror, right? Which really is... Acknowledged. I was with you. I was with you. I had you. <laughs> Facts, though. Yes, like, yes. And I think that... And for me, the first film, I, I think especially, but I think they did it well in sort of the second film as well. Not, not, and I'm not talking about part two or part three. Right. I'm talking about 1992 or 2021. Right. Um, who is the monster? Mm. Mm. Who is the monster? Because even when OG Tony Todd, when he was stalking Ellen, right? Who was the monster there, right? Helen that came all up into the hood trying to do a dissertation, a thesis, whatever. Right. Just stirring up stuff, right? You know what I'm saying? Um, and then I think in the second film, once we, we get to the end and we see this story, um, it's that to me, that is the takeaway message. Right. Who, who is the monster? Is it, is it him? I would say no. Yes, please. Thank you. Sorry, something about what I've realized when it comes specifically to black horror films is that. It is really interesting overall watching, and I, I don't want to say superstition because it's not the correct, like, it's not the right term, but it's the word that's popping into my head, of watching how black people interact when it comes to, like, the spirituality of everything. Because when it comes, for me, the Lovecraft country, um, when I watched it, it was so interesting to break it down. Um, it's like me being a theater major, but also at the same time just loving to break down TV shows and films to its basic themes. And then watching Get Out, it's very much like a big thing, especially that I've noticed in a lot of like African uh, mythology, is that names hold so much power. Absolutely, they do. Names hold so much power. And I think that it says something that we feel as black people, when we feel a connection with somebody that we're willing to give them like nicknames mm -hmm. or loving, like, there's a power that is invested in that. Mm -hmm. And so watching black horror films, especially that so, film, like, yeah, like, that like, film. like you're, we all understand it. We're like, we don't say that. We right. don't say that. Right. Like, because we know the power, we know the weight that it holds. Meanwhile, though, you have much of like what he stands for when you say like when we see the name George Floyd we know automatically that, that is a name that will happen. Mm -hmm. That is a name that holds significance. And that it is a name that should not be forgotten. Mm -hmm. 
So having this whole like base like echo of everything and watching how black culture is integrated into black horror films honestly just I love it. I love it. I'm about those shoes. Do it. Do it. I'm about those shoes. I'm, I'm gonna just. I'm gonna get to you one, one moment. Um, I'm just gonna go through this really quickly. Don't get dizzy. Uh, I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna name these movies that we was gonna talk about, but we've talked too much. Okay. So, um, and then I'm gonna make sure you have our contact info. So, um, ooh, ooh, keep no, not that one. People on the stairs. Y'all better go up. People on the stairs. Classic. Classic. So amazing. Um. Tales from the Hood. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I better come up with this. We will have to do a new episode of uh, about that podcast. Uh, about this year. Not really dead. 1968. I wasn't there, but fast. It was good. Um, more recently, the Black. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, I'm gonna just end on. Sorry, don't. I'm on this. I got a podcast. <laughs> so, if if you loved anything that that we said today, I have stuff up here for you um, pertaining to the podcast. But but what I want to sort of end this with, because you know we talked a lot about the heaviness and the trauma, um, an understanding of that trauma is required to do differently. Right, and the reason that Victor and I, the reason that I do this, the reason that I call Victor in to do this with me as well, is we have the ability to build a capacity for empathy by sharing these stories, by saying names, by talking about these things, right? So if there's anything that you take from this, um, it would be that, right? It would be that we have the capacity to do and be different and to acknowledge pain, acknowledge hurt, acknowledge suffering without like just acknowledging our own. Right. You know what I'm saying? And if there are any words of wisdom you'd like to use. Yes, uh, as you said, the, the reason why we talk about this is because we understand inherently that the main communication device that we've used as a species to inform ourselves are stories. And we need to have more of a hand in the stories that are told about us and the stories that we tell to ourselves about ourselves. Um, that is such an important thing that we are now understanding on both a cultural level, racial level, philosophical level. Um, if you want to change what other people's stories about you are, you have to have a hand in how they're told. Mm. So we're gonna look at even more of this in the upcoming you know, years, I'm sure, of how folks that are marginalized are telling their stories, how they're framing the, those concepts, and getting the rest of the world to understand them through their own eyes. Mm -hmm. Thank you all so much. Absolutely. I appreciate you. All around. Shout out to Victor Dandridge. Shout out to the professor.